podcast one production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. Here's part two of my conversation with Ben Shuri. And if you haven't heard the first part, I'd encourage you to go back and listen. What was the turning point, do you think, from that restaurant with no covers or 10 covers being put on someone's must-go-to list? Well, that's a, such a strange thing conversation because I, I have n- had no motivation to be there. Like I had no ambition to be in that list. I couldn't have even dreamed that. Not in a thousand years could have I possibly had a dream that, that anything that I would create could be considered in the realm of those other restaurants or on that list. You know, I come from the back country of New Zealand. I come from a school with seven students, two of which my sisters. My mother was the principal and, and school teacher. It's not even within my capacity at that point in time to have those have those dreams, and it just happened. It literally just happened, and I think, you know, my pure doggedness and ambition was probably why, but also because I've viewed the world a little bit differently, and again, not better, just differently from the very time I was a child. Part of it is my ability to look from the outside in, to look through the window and to see things that beautiful that other people haven't noticed and to capture those things and to polish them and to bring them into focus as a cook. I think I have ability to do that. That's unique as well though. I mean, connecting your Maori hungi story to your restaurant, your famous potatoes cooked in earth. Can you tell us quickly about that? Because that's connecting all of that random experience, isn't it? And then bringing it into the dining room. That was about pride that I felt as a New Zealander that we were so blessed to live in this country but had this unique culture in Maori culture. And the gift that Maori gave to me and to Pakeha, to white people, was that we could respectfully celebrate that as well. And so I was trying to just do honour and bring honour to my country by making that dish, you know, and I didn't realise that creating a dish kind of solely out of a potato and making potato the star rather than the meat was kind of a new, it was a new idea. And when that came, it was criticized initially, heavily criticized. Like, that's a joke. You know, like, where's the steak? You know, where's, where's the chicken? Mm. Where's anything? The fish, give us something with this potato. It can't just be a potato. And, but I had a very different viewpoint because I looked at ingredients as if they were all on the same level and no, none of them were higher than others or more valuable to me. Lobsters weren't more valuable to potatoes than me just society's preconceived notions about what value is and what luxury is that had attached those tags to those dishes. But for me, a great potato was something that I'd enjoyed more than any lobster, you know? <laughs> so, so I wanted to share kind of that enthusiasm, but it took a while, you know, for that to catch on and initially. But there were enough people that started to say, wow, there's something special about that dish. And that dish was probably the main dish that put Attica on the map internationally because they were like, wow, there's somebody cooking with an identity that's different to identity in France or in America. I've always looked at it like this as well. Like I would prefer to eat things that seem of the place when I visit a country. So, you know, if I go to Paris, it's not really, I'm not going there for sushi. There might be a great sushi restaurant there, but that's not what I'm there for personally. 
no, I like it when things speak of a place. And there wasn't a lot of that happening in Australia. You know, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of people kind of, you know, addressing the fact that we had thousands of indigenous ingredients here that were wonderful and unique and more valuable, um, that belonged here, that were good for the land, that tell such an incredibly rich cultural story connected to our first people. And so for me, you know, I had to move on from this obsession with New Zealand, which I had in my early part of my outer career, because I wasn't living there anymore. And I, I was running out of inspiration because I wasn't there on, you know, on a yearly basis even. Um, so I started looking closer to home. But the first time that, you know, we came onto that list, it was a shot out of the blue. Like there was, there was a letter that arrived in the mail, literally. And I was so astonished that I cried. I don't even know why I cried, but I got the list and we were, we were 51 to 100. It said it didn't give a number. And I was so shocked. I was so shocked. I could not, it was insane. I was like, wrong person. They gave it, what? No, but it's my name on it. And it's the restaurant's name. I was like, no, it's a joke. And then when I realized it was real, like I had to tell the kitchen and I was so overcome with emotion. I just didn't even see it coming or even think of it. Has that been a standout moment in that tenure of that restaurant? No, no, no. I've got to be honest. Before I'd won an award, I thought, you know, I wanted to win an award before I'd won an award. <laughs> I really did. Like, I have to be honest, you know, and I particularly wanted to win, you know, like this Young Chef Award because I was a young chef and I didn't. <laughs> and um, Idiots. No, but, <laughs> but then when I did win an award, like we won a restaurant of the year the first time in the Age Good Food Guy, which is a huge honour. Um, and I was like, it was very unexpected. We were only two hats. And, um, and I thought to myself, this is going to be great. This is going to be like that big defining moment. I'm going to feel so good about myself forever now. You know, that, that was kind of in my head, never having won a, a big award. And then it came and it passed real quick. Like the feeling was amazing on the night. You know, the next day you go back to work and you're like, heck, things have to be a lot better because we're really not very good. You know, literally I've always felt like that. Like that's how awards make me feel, like not good enough. So it sets a new standard. It does. Now you've got to get there. Yeah, it's helpful like that. Um, and it's really lovely for the team. But for me, it's not a motivating factor. And other than that initial, that initial award, it never has been. Um, that's all honestly, hand on heart. Um, probably a standout moment for me was the purchase of the, of the restaurant in yeah, 2015. Which was 2015, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When you bought that restaurant, we're like, what's he doing? Do you know what I mean? That was the first thing that went through my head. Yeah. You know, because now you've got all the extra worry yes. of – well and truly having to run that restaurant. Not just the food, but now you're doing everything. No, that's right. And I didn't really know how to run that restaurant. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. not really, you know? Like, you think you know. So four or five five years later, it's well, I've, uh, I've gotten a bit better at it. You've done uh, all right. Well, yeah. But, you know, COVID <clears throat> will come and make you feel pretty vulnerable as well, though. Make you think that, man, your business plan could have been a bit stronger. But don't you think it's the kind of business that will always, the ebb and flow, the changes, that it's always a... I think it was David Chang actually said he was talking about a bit like a football player. Maybe a chef's got eight years in him, you know, like to really, mm. you may disagree or agree. I disagree. It's just something. It's no, just something I, he said. I, He's got eight years in him to really kind of play the field and whatever. And then he found in his life, because obviously it's a very different life to yours, that mm. he had to step back and kind of coach rather than, than play. You know, I think there's some truth in that, but that most respect to David is a good friend. Um, just different paths, you know. Um, I only have one restaurant 
you know, I'm. He's I'm, got many. Yeah, and I'm. I'm in. You know, I'm somebody that enjoys cooking every day in some level. You kind of need to do that. I think uh, for me, you know, I come from this very like strict kind of ethos of punk rock in the late 80s and early 90s. And what that said to me was like that you fight for like your independence. I'd also read this book when I was 18 on hospitality. I can't remember what it was called, but it was a paperback. And it, and it said, no matter what you do, never take any business partners. Um, that was like <laughs> never, ever, ever, ever. That was the only thing I remember from the book. It sort of stuck with me. comes back to the independence. Uh, I looked at punk rock bands like Fugazi who – know, had their own record label and self-published and the way that they communicated with their fans was really eth- ethical and honest and they turned down millions and millions of dollars to not sign a contract with Atlantic Records and to this day they still sell their records pretty cheap. That was That's kind of my psyche. I've had to get over that a little bit because I've had to, you know, I've wanted to kind of engage with a bigger market um, while still kind of holding true to my punk rock ideals and it's a tricky thing but I've learned that I can yeah. and there's a beauty in that it's kind of a, it's infectious and empowering so you know I'd like to grow my company you know I probably didn't really want to before you know um, but I want to do it in a really sustainable way and you know I want to retain the ownership of it you know I don't have shareholders or part business partners and I fought tooth and nail to achieve that and I nearly didn't get there but I uh, but I did so fascinating COVID's obviously thrown a not a spanner in the works, but a new challenge for you. We don't know where it's all going and what the restaurant industry is like. COVID's become a chat. It's a challenge. It's a new yeah. chapter. Can you have you got any idea where this is all going, or or well, how it is affecting you, or your motivation? Well, I'm I'm motivated probably almost solely by two things, and that is people. Like I I love people, like and I love cooking for people, and I genuinely care about the people that I cook for too much. Too intense about it, for sure. You know, then that, that reflects both on on the people that I work with and the people that I cook for. But I, I never take the great gift of cooking for granted. And one thing about COVID is that people will say, "Oh, like you have to make fifty lasagnas today." I'm like, "Yes, but I'm 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 cooking." <laughs> you know, like, I'm able to cook for a living, and lots of people aren't. You know, so how lucky am I? You know, I'm I'm motivated by people and the other thing that I'm completely motivated by is just trying to be to live to like a very high standard which is based on quality as dictated by me of course but it, it, I just have this one standard for sort of for living and I find it easiest to just apply the standard to living to try to apply it to everything I do and then I don't have to ever vary it so whether it would be a relationship with my girlfriend Kylie or a relationship with my children or making sure that my car is clean or making my bed. I mean, it sounds a bit military. It's not really. It's just easier if I don't have to vary, probably because I am intense and can be a bit compulsive. If I just have one standard, it's leveling, and I can apply that to everything. Like, for example, I have once went out for a great meal at night, and I was staying at this place, and the food was outstanding, some of the best I've ever eaten. The next morning I get up and I have the breakfast and it's terrible. Now the meal from the night before is completely affected by the the experience of eating the breakfast. If only that cook had applied the same standard to the breakfast and realized and recognized it as equal importance to the breakfast. Mm. That's kind of how that's I it. live. That's the lobster conversation, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. It's just like everything's good. Like just make it Dinner's good. better we than We don't breakfast. always do it right. We're not, yeah. we're not flawless, but... 
I've become increasingly probably intense about making every meal counts, even when you're doing hundreds of meals a week like we are now. It feels like it counts more than ever, and I love the energy of making it count, you know, and making sure that everybody, it's completely understood what's at stake. That gives you certainty, doesn't it, if you apply the same standards? I mean, for you, whether it's making your bed or yeah, cooking, it does. cooking an egg or whatever, it's certainty. Knowing how much you care about the staff that work for you, how do you diffuse that down the line? Because not everybody's built like you. No, I mean, I'm incredibly hands-on. Some people hands find that on. very uh, stressful. Oh, yeah, no, really no I wouldn't deny that I'm, a, I am a stressful person to work for, I'm sure. Um, people don't tell me that, but since COVID, I felt like a tornado, you know, like I, I loved feeling like that though. Like just like getting in and like I've created everything on our menu. It's just so fantastic to just be cooking so hard, you know, <laughs> like just to be back to that, that because over the years, you know, like you can get away from it and it's just brought me back to that immediacy and just cooking even simpler is kind of nice as well, but also being able to flex in different ways. I've always had a lot of ideas that I couldn't apply to Attica because it didn't quite fit, you know, on a tasty menu format or it just was the wrong kind of artistic fit or something. I'm and that's sure. the challenge, isn't it? Because you set the standards, set the bar, the style, everything, and yeah. you feel confined by that now because well, people's expectations. Yes. They go, well, I didn't come to Attica for this. No, that's right. I expect this of you. <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't I'm like, get it. Yeah, that's but happened. like, I, you know, I just want to be a little more freewheeling, you know. <laughs> like, give no. you a and soup for this. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because we're doing this dish of this souvlaki at the moment, which is a little more freewheeling. I took a bit of liberty with the chips, which are like, Barely cooked potatoes marinated in a, in a, in a vinaigrette. They're like medium rare, like the potatoes. And like I, I think they're fantastic, you know. But I have to be like, very careful about how I tell people about that because their expectation is that they would be like they normally have them cooked, which is soft, and they are not soft. There's just a lot of thought that has to go into like sending food to people's homes and a lot more thought than, than I knew about. It's fun though, right? Like, uh, And I, th I suppose like... Fun is like an underrated commodity. We haven't really touched on that. Like I, I like to do things that are really fun and effervescent as well. Like I, I'm serious, but I also want to have a really good time while I'm doing it, listen to loud music, joke with my staff, playfully tease, you know, in a, in a way that's appropriate and nice. You know, I never want to make people feel shit. You know, that's not part of me. I could get really upset about things not going right, but I try to direct that anger in a constructive way like some of my mentors that I worked for, you know, not always possible. I'm not a perfect man, but I do try to temper that. Uh, I have exceptional people around me. You know, I have people have places of responsibility who do things that, you know, I don't need to do both the highest levels. We have a, a really strong gender balance. It's all really important in a business. Mm. And we have women, not just, not just an equal balance of men and women, but an equal balance of men and women in positions of power, which is also important, especially yeah for a man who runs a company. I've and, always found it, sorry to interrupt, but I've always no. found it fascinating in, in my own restaurants that at one period, most of my senior positions were filled by women. And, and at the time the penny dropped, I went, how come this business of hospitality has always been dominated by men? Because quite often we're really crap at it. And we're crap at it because the way I made sense of it is that men are driven by process and detail and, you know, professionalism and, you know, delivery. Yes. Whereas women just go, are you, you hungry? Yeah, are you exactly. thirsty? Are yeah. you hungry? Are you thirsty? They want to look after you. And in hospitality, it always seems that the sommelier that's obsessed with the detail is missing the point of the hospitality bit, which is that yeah. I like to feed people 
and I want to offer you something to drink. No, that, and that's such a valid point. I mean, we <laughs> we still do have a terrible imbalance in our industry as well with men and women. And you know, I can only speak to men when I say that you you, you know you must employ people, women in positions of power as well, where change can be made and where they can make important decisions yeah. that affect the company and the women in the company and the men that are in the company have to be held accountable as well. Yeah. And that's something that we're really strong on. We have, we believe one of the best cultures in the country and yeah. any business. You know, I think if you create a framework and flexibility, which most businesses haven't been used to, but everything that happens forces them to be more. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you talk about things, you know, like we, we haven't been able to do it very much since COVID, but we would, we have to meetings a week, which are called staff discussions, where staff are on a roster and they get to stand up and give a prepared speech to all of the other staff in a circle who are respectfully, completely and utterly listening. And so they have to research their topic and present a speech for 15 minutes. And it can be about anything as long as it's positive. And by positive, I mean you can't just have a, a whinge about the work situation or whatever it is. <laughs> by positive, I still mean, you know, we've had people who've talked about suffering from depression, you know, once a young man talked about attempting to commit suicide, you know, a young woman from South Korea spoke about the persecution that her family endured and many of them were murdered fleeing North Korea. Matt, our head chef, likes to talk about the Richmond Football Club, you know, <laughs> um, all sorts of things, very varied um, from human rights to feminism to activism to, you know, the rights of First Nations people in Australia to all kinds of conversations that might come up. But what it lends itself to is it, it enables those staff to have a voice within this business. They don't feel like a number. Sometimes in the past I was made to feel like a number and I didn't like that, like as an individual. Um, I'm a team player, but I'm also an individual. And I think, you know, you can create a culture where the team is like number one, but individual rights are still respected as well. It's very important. So what we do is we try to give a voice to our staff because as you know, in hospitality, you know, you have these two teams and you try to always bring them together, the front of house team and the kitchen team. But quite often what happens is somebody who's right at the very front in the bar perhaps doesn't cross paths very often who's somebody who's right out the back. In our case, it'd be the pastry kitchen. They don't know each other effectively because they don't cross paths very often. And so when things go wrong in the heat of the moment, and those two people come into contact when things are going wrong, the conflict can be quite exaggerated because they don't necessarily feel empathy for each other. So by enabling them to tell their story, they, they actually get to know each other better and they, and they actually get to have a two-way conversation. Understanding it, someone else's position. Exactly. You know? And so how that affects the company, though, is that that goodwill is passed on to the guests in spades. My little ulterior motive there. But that, but that's the result of a harmonious working place where people feel like they're not a number. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One Australia or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. Everything you're talking about right now is so topical. It's like the restaurant is a microcosm, a very well-run version of what is happening in the world right now, not understanding people's 
position. Your humanity is something that's kind of, actually in all the research I've done over the last couple of days about you, you know, seeing your interviews at MAD, etc. cetera, um, something that shines through your charitable causes, et cetera. Is that something that is become more important, more central to who you are and what you do? Yeah, it has. You know, I've had some experiences in my life where people have treated me exceptionally well when they had no reason to. We've all been through a lot, like with the bushfires, with COVID. And in addition to that, I've had many times in the last few years in particular where I've been completely humbled on country with First Nations people. And I've listened to the stories that they've told about our history, our shared history. And I knew some of these stories from my childhood because my father lived in Coopedi and it makes me perhaps, while I can never assume to know how that feels, I'm listening to how that feels and how that trauma feels and what it looks like. And I'm also witnessing things that I don't like as well. So one of the ideas about trying to be, you know, kind of the best version of yourself that you can be is that you really, it's forced me to look at myself very directly and inwardly and to see the parts of myself that I potentially didn't like very much and could change. And that's something that I worked on a great deal with my partner, Kylie, who I've been with for a couple of years. And there's this sort of sense that of just trying to set like a good example as well in your community, not just with your staff, but to the greater community in restaurants and not in restaurants about uh, what's fair and what that looks like. And I suppose it comes back to just human values. And I just want to go to work at a place every day that feels really good, where I can look everybody in the eye and know that I've done the right thing by them to the best of my ability. And when their parents come to the restaurant, I can also greet their parents with enthusiasm and their parents know that their child who in some ways have entrusted, you know, to my care and they're young adults and not children, that, that, that they're being looked after in a way that's appropriate. Um, and that just enables me to live my life in a much more positive way because I coming back to like kind of quality, I want quality relationships as well. You know, like I, I you know, I want to engage with people and be sincere. I just want to kind of, it's a very, maybe it's like a little bit of a hippie-ish thing to say, but like, I just kind of want, I like good vibes, you know, like I like a positive working environment. I didn't always have that, you know, I wasn't always the creator of that. I was the picture perpetuator of a bad working environment in the past as well. Yeah, it's and learned. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I have to own that, you know, and I have to reconcile that in, almost on a daily basis that, that in the past that I wasn't good enough as a leader and that my insecurity that let me down and let people that I work for down as well. But I want to move, I've moved beyond that. And um, when it was bad, it made me hate my work and hate my life, you know, and it led me to a place of depression. And so creating a good environment can be about as much of your own mental sanctity as it can be about the mental sanctity of others, you know. And I strongly feel like if I'm not in a good place, then how could I possibly be any assistance to anybody else? So going down into feeling blue or, you know, getting depression, you know, maybe I don't even recall exactly how long, maybe seven or eight years ago, and coming out of that was one of the most amazing you know, experience coming out of it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life and not wanting to go back to it means that after that, I, I built a, a system of being up and that, and that includes basically 
a no dickheads policy. You know, that's really in its simplest form what it means. And that means that when, you know, we employ people, we employ them for character rather than skills. And we also say to them that if you come here, you know, in the interview process, if I'm interviewing you, Gary, I'll say to you, listen, you seem great. You know, um, seems like your skills and, you, you know, your work ethic are what we need. There's just really one rule that I have. And Kylie and other people who help employ uh, make these decisions on employing people have other questions, but I really only have one question. It's really all I care about. And, it, and it's this. Can you promise me that when you come to work here that you won't bring any negative attitude? And I will qualify what negative attitude means to me. It doesn't mean that if you're bullied that you don't say anything. It doesn't mean if you're sexually harassed if you don't that you don't say anything. But what it means is, of course, I want to immediately know about those issues. And you need to feel safe and secure in the knowledge that you can bring those issues, if not to me, to another member of the team. But negative attitude to me is talking back, is not working hard, um, is dropping your head, is sulking, pouting, or is causing problems with other members of the staff, just being negative. That's what negative attitude to me in brief is. So, Gary, can you promise me that you won't bring any negative attitude? Can you, and prom- now, I can could, you promise yes. me? Okay, I would bring the best version of myself. Well, every in day. that case, Gary, then you have the job. But remember that we had this conversation... I've signed and the contract. Exactly. And if if I if I the first side of negative attitude that I see from you, we'll we'll be talking about it. And it makes them accountable from the very beginning. And really we have so few problems because of it. I think it's kind of it's come from this place of kind of suffering, actually. Yeah. But it's very clear. It is. You know, it's it's um in my experience in my career, I learned to be a chef, not a manager. Yeah. It took me too. a lot of took a lot of effort to understand people. And one word can change everything. Mm. If you use that one word, it can be at a moment change everything. It just forces you to think a little bit more and put yourself in someone else's shoes just for that moment. It but, you know, does. It's tough. And- I do want to ask Kobe, is he growing up to be a fine young man? <laughs> do you dedicate enough time to him? I, don't, I yeah. think because yeah. listening to this, we've built this picture of you and you work so hard and COVID's put you back in the kitchen. And in amongst this, there's a young man that it's, is looking at you and you're still his hero, aren't you? How old is he? He's 15. Oh, mm, you're not perfect anymore, are you? You're definitely not perfect in <laughs> Kobe's eyes. No, uh, no, he's an exceptional young man. He has two younger sisters, Ella and Ruby, who mm. are 13 and 10. And I'm incredibly proud of all three of them. But Kobe is developing into a into a really beautiful, sensitive young man. And my girlfriend Kylie remarked on those exact things just last weekend. And I have the kids on Sunday, Monday and Tuesday mornings. Um, and so I'm really committed to them in that time and throughout the week. For me, my parents worked incredibly hard. You know, they did the hours and they put the hard yards in. But I always felt that when we had time together, it was really quality time. And I try to remember that. So even though, you know, we might not have you know, as much time together as I would like. Um, the time that we have is really high quality and I'm completely focused on them and not distracted. Switched on, ready yeah, to go. Yeah, yeah, and it's exciting. The kids, you know, like who knows what they'll do. They're all so different. Um, you know, I just hope that I'm sending a, a good example to them with my work ethic but also, you know, how I treat people and also to be yourself first and foremost always like and try not to move from that, you know. People would always tell you to be something else or to be tell you to be what they want you to be, but don't, don't do that. You know, 
believe in yourself and keep going. I think you're setting the uh, the bar, the standard and uh, everything else on so many levels. So it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. As I say, we could keep going. But I'm very conscious of the fact that uh, you've worked all night. <laughs> you deserve at least one good cup of coffee and put your feet up. Thanks, buddy. It's so nice to talk to you too. Thanks, Ben. So my tips and tricks, and it's a tough one when you're talking about the best restaurant in the world out to go. I'm never going to compete, am I, in terms of creating a dish and giving you a quick tip of what to cook. And what captivated me about that chat was the use of Indigenous ingredients and foraged ingredients too, which have been largely ignored by most restaurants, including me in my career. And there are three things that I think are pretty easily identified. A quick Google search will show you what they look like and explain what they are, and most of them are coastal. And if you take a quick walk along the beach, you will no doubt find at least one of these. So first one is saltbush and really beautiful seasoning. I mean, these can be just dried in a really slow oven. They're a, a pale silvery leaf and obviously a bush-like um, plant. And actually, if you just taste those straight away, you'll understand why it's called saltbush. You know, there's just a overriding kind of saline flavor. The other one is pig face, which is a kind of creeping succulent. And they often have like a daisy-like flower, but they're really juicy. They have little fingers. And warrigal greens, which are a broad, very soft green leaf uh, creeping plant, uh, much like spinach leaves. And they taste much like spinach leaves. You'd use them in very much the same way. And they're absolutely delicious. And in fact, my local kind of beach walk, they're all over the place and no one touches them. So if you've never used native ingredients, maybe this is a good start and an easy start. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.